Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Just this last week, we made Douglas Wilson's talk show Man Rampant Season 1 available in the Canon app for free. So all you need to do is download the Canon app, and there, unlocked from the paywall, you will see Season 1 of Man Rampant. Download it today and watch to your heart's desire. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 187. I'm Douglas Wilson. Glad to have you here with us. And here we go. Episode 187. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, what George Gilder calls the pronoun mutants. And this is a a pressing practical problem for many Christians because uh, they work for various corporations that have laid down the law about uh, using people's preferred pronouns and whatnot. And it's sort of a puzzling uh, ethical dilemma. What, what do I do? And the climate is such that if, in many corporations, if you refuse to use the uh, preferred pronouns that someone has, has designated for themselves, you can be easily dismissed or fired or you know, otherwise uh, disciplined. So, how are Christians to navigate uh, this? I would argue that there's a difference between going along with something that a person is mistaken about and sinfully so, grievously sinfully so, but which they are able to do, such as change their name. So, if Herbert becomes Heather and he legally changes his name to Heather, then that is his name. Now, it shouldn't be, just like um, Johnny Cash's dad shouldn't have named him Sue, right? But it it shouldn't be. But there are there are ambiguous names like uh, you know Leslie are uh, names that go both ways, or you know. So there are problems there. But when someone goes and changes their name from Herbert to Heather, that really is their name. They're making a claim about their name, and the claim that they're making is true. Now. Uh, The reasons for making it are radically false, but the basic claim is true. When someone is demanding that you use the pronouns, however, they're not making a claim about themselves individually, about their name. They're making a claim about the world. Okay, so that's the distinction that I would make. If I'm working in corporate America and I've got uh, an employee in my division that is in transition and he changes his name to Heather, I would be willing to call him Heather, but I would not be willing to call him her. I would not be willing to refer to Heather as she. So I would say, you know, I would say Heather is a good man. Uh, Heather, I would refer to him with the masculine pronoun or not at all. So either uh, it's either Heather all the time, or it's Heather and masculine pronouns. And the reason for that is because pronoun usage is not a demand from the person that you respect the name that they changed their name to. They are demanding that you bow down to their conception of the world. And that you, can't, that you cannot do. 
um, because the world belongs to God, not to them. The world of pronouns is our common heritage. That person that wants to be called she or her is not in charge of the English language, and they simply must not be given charge, uh, control over the English language. If someone wants to change their name legally from their first name to their middle name, or if someone wants to change their last name, if someone wants to change their name, this is something that for centuries people have had the legal right to do. So it, it, basically, my name is what I want to be called by, and that is something that I have some measure of control over, right? But when I say, I want you to refer to me as her or she, what I'm doing is I'm doing something to the English language, and the English language is connected to the way the world actually is, the way God made the world. So, the thing I would encourage um, Christians to do is if you are working in a hostile, secular space, you work for Amazon, or you work for Google, or you work for you know, some giant corp, if you do that, then I would simply draw the line at pronouns. If you are working for a, an ostensibly Christian organization, or maybe a Judeo-Christian organization that's starting to, go, starting to develop the wobbles when it comes to this sort of thing, then I would agree to uh, use someone's, you know, let's say it's not anybody in-house, but they want you to um, accommodate customers or people outside your Christian company as much as possible. I draw the line in the same place, but I would protest internally in a, a nominally Christian environment, protest even the, the, you know, the, the tendency to want to bend. So, uh, at the end of the day, you can say, okay, I'll, I'll use the name, but I'm not going to use the pronouns because I'm not going to start lying about the world to spare somebody's feelings. Continuing with uh, the podcast, uh, episode 187, this is our hamartiology section where we're studying sin. Right? Remember, uh, this word refers to sin. We're going through the New Testament and looking at all the words that refer to sins. So, with our next word in our study of hamartiology, we come to another one that is used only once in the entire New Testament. This word is desidemonia, desidemonia and it is rendered in the KJV as superstition. Now, I'm including it in this study, even though in this one use, it is being misapplied. So, the word does, apply, the, the word does refer to a sin, but in this case, uh, the, in the one usage, it's not the sin is being misidentified. It is a sin, but uh, you'll see in a minute. Festus has inherited the prisoner Paul from his predecessor, Felix. And Festus brought the case up to Agrippa and Bernice, who were visiting him. And this is in Acts 25, 19. But had certain questions against him of their own, he's talking about the, the Jews. These Jews had certain questions against him of their own superstition, there it is, and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The superstition he's referring to is the entire Jewish religion. So, it's certainly a misapplication. The monotheistic grandeur of Judaism was thought to be a superstition by the Romans, but it wasn't. The sophisticated Roman, with their teeming hordes of gods, 
gives the back of his hand to the monotheistic faith of the Jews, who worship the one true God. And so Festus misses the boat here. So he calls it a superstition when it is not a superstition. But it is true, okay, this is true, that Paul's Jewish persecutors were acting as though their faith were no more than a superstition. They were running on autopilot, doing what their fathers had done and for no other reason. That is not good enough. And a blind adherence to tradition is the way of superstition. If you're just following in the way of your fathers and you can't give an account of yourself, it's just that that we've always done it this way. That is the beating heart of superstition. Yaroslav Yaroslav Pelikan put it well when he said, tradition, quote, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. The dead faith of the living is no more than superstition. Desidemonia. So, my book review this uh, time, and this time referring, of course, to uh, episode 187 of the podcast. This uh, book review is a book called The Return of the Chaos Monsters. <laughs> well, you know, The Return of the Chaos Monsters. And it was written by a gent named um, Mobley. Now, this is a, it's a series of chapters on various backstories in the Bible. Various backstories in the Bible. Now, I'm raising a point of some delicacy here. Uh, the Mobley, the author, I believe he currently teaches at Yale. He, uh, it is apparent in the book that he had an evangelical upbringing, but he uh, got swept into the world of, it's sort of a, he's sort of a mainline liberal academic scholar in biblical studies. So, he exults in the Bible, but he's clearly not an inerrantist, not a conservative, not a nothing like that, right? He's, he's a liberal. Why do I read books like that? Well, I've made this point before, and this, this book is a wonderful, wonderful case in point. Oftentimes, uh, there are ma- I'll put it this way, there are many occasions where a liberal exegete, a liberal scholar, a liberal academic is more to be trusted with what the text actually says because he's not stuck with the results of his exegesis. In other words, he can say, the Apostle Paul taught this and that here and here, and isn't it ridiculous? Ho, ho, ho. But he can be relied upon to tell us what Paul actually thought. The evangelical, the conservative scholar, is especially if he works for an institution that requires uh, inerrancy statements, the, um, the evangelical scholar is stuck with the results of his study. Whatever it is that he says that Paul said, he has to affirm also. And so, there are many occasions where if the teaching of the Bible is out of sync with modern cosmology or modern assumptions or modern approaches to ethics and whatnot, the evangelical is under pressure to say, no, Paul didn't really mean that or Isaiah didn't really mean that because he's got to embrace whatever the conclusions of his study are. Mobley is, like many sophisticated and educated liberals, says things that reveal that he is not stuck with the results of his exegesis. He does not have to affirm at the end of the day what it, whatever it was he said was going on in the Bible. And consequently, I uh, was really encouraged. But, so, he points certain things out that I don't think he believes. But once he pointed them out as a Bible-believing 
Christian, he points them out, they're there in the text, and I believe them, and consequently am edified. His, um, the thing that particularly blessed me about uh, this book was his description of the uh, prophetic cycle where God, uh, the, the people are uh, in, at peace with God, there's a, there's a condition of shalom. Then people start, the people start to wander off. They start to do things that are displeasing to God, and they, disrupt, they corrupt the worship of God, and they start to abuse their relationship to uh, others horizontally. And then God gets angry with the people, the, the stage three. And then uh, in stage four, and, and then the prophet comes in at that point to warn the people at stage three that they're incurring judgment. They're gathering up judgment for themselves. Then stage four, the wrath of God is poured out. And then stage five, things are back in a condition of equilibrium. And uh, Mobley points out passage after passage after passage where this cycle is repeated. One notable exception being with Jonah. Jonah didn't want to, uh, well, I, I left out one thing. When, at, when, the people, when the people start wandering off, the prophet comes and warns them. And then when the judgment starts to fall, the prophet turns around and stands in the breach before God and intercedes for the people before God, pleading with him not to do this thing that the prophet was just telling the people that he was going to do. And uh, Mobley shows over and over and over again how this pattern uh, plays out in the Old Testament and, uh, and how Jonah's, Jonah's problem was he didn't want, to do, didn't want to do that second part. So, I recommend the book, The Return of the Chaos Monsters. There's a lot of good information there. You don't want to be um, corrupted by his liberalism, but you do want to note that he sees a number of things in the text that conservative Christians ought to see.